You may be seated. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The salt of Jesus' day was not the same thing as the salt of ours. In, in his day, there were no refineries to purify the salt, so salt was actually a white, powdery, impure compound. And when used up, the sodium chloride could be drawn out of that compound, and what was left behind retained all the same look and feel as the salt, except one thing. It had no saltiness. At that point, those leftovers were good for nothing, and they would be thrown out and serve as road dust. Now, thankfully for us, the saltiness that Jesus spoke of when he said your identity is as the salt of the world, when it is compromised, when we make choices that diminish our impact on those around us, we are not irredeemable. We, we aren't thrown out as no good. As Andy Griffith famously said to that rascally Ernest T. Bass, you're not no account. You're not no account. With the redeeming, restorative grace of God, we're not no account. We can be revitalized. Our saltiness can be restored because as Jeremiah pointed out, nothing is too difficult for God. Now, here, here's what I believe about those of us who are the salt of the earth. We want to be salty again. We identified with the purpose of that identity. We recognize that God, when he reaches us through the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has a greater purpose for our lives than we could ever manufacture for ourselves. And we want to be salty. We want to be good for what our good God called us to be. And so, in this series, we have identified the fundamental requirement of saltiness which we said is humility. It's humility that is anchored in the inescapable truth that we are created to be dependent upon God. As, the, as Paul told the philosophers in Athens, he said, listen guys, in him we live and move and have our being. In God we live and move and have our being. In other words, without God... We're nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, him, you can do nothing. Nothing good, nothing lasting, nothing purposeful. 
And so therefore, it stands to reason that if we're going to maximize our potential as the salt of the earth, we must acknowledge and joyfully accept the fact that we are dependent. And that is a feat which is impossible without humility. See, because the world we live in tells us that dependence or weakness, which is what dependence is in the world's eyes, diminishes us. And so it requires humility to remain salty. The first step in cooperating with God to safeguard our saltiness is to joyfully accept our dependence. But acknowledging and then accepting our dependence is just the start. We also have to live out the humility of dependence by resisting the overwhelming urge to hide it. Remember I said the world has acknowledged, has taught us that dependence is weakness. So by default... We respond to that message by constructing an elaborate facade of self-sufficiency that is not real. But saltiness requires us to own up to our insufficiency. Readily accepting and admitting our chronic tendency to fail. Because that's the issue of dependence. Without dependence upon God, we can't live the righteous life God created us for. And in our flesh, which rebels against dependence, we fail. So we have to own that. We have to own it. Now why? Because there's nothing that compromises salt or our saltiness, like the putrid stench of hypocrisy. Okay, I'm going to say that again. There is nothing that compromises our saltiness like the putrid stench of hypocrisy. Hypocrites have no salt. Jesus told a story that we've examined a number of times, but it's a story that contrasts the futility of hypocritical self-sufficiency with the powerful potential of authentically owning our failures. So I want you to turn your Bibles today to Luke chapter 18. As I said, we've looked at this passage a number of times, but it's a story that I think really speaks to where we are and the importance of doing our part to cooperate with God's desire to maintain our saltiness. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. Now Luke introduces this story that Jesus told by telling us exactly who Jesus is talking to. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, who built the facade of self-sufficiency, and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, according to Luke, with this story, Jesus was targeting those of us who are confident in our own righteousness and therefore refuse to admit dependence upon God. I can do this without help. Their hard work, the way they established themselves by keeping all the rules they thought were relevant. By the way, that's the only way we can attain self-righteousness is we pick out a few rules that are easy for us to follow, right? Their hard work among those relevant rules to them made them righteous. And therefore, they were hypocritically arrogant and judgmental to the weak-willed failures around them. The Pharisee, who by the way was called to be the salt in the story, he was the religious leader, he, he looked down on others because of his achievements. And he predictably stood alone in the temple. He was praying alone because in his mind he had no equal. No one was worthy of sharing his space because of what he had accomplished in his power. Which, by the way, was little more than building a facade of self-sufficiency. He was always right. A sure sign of hypocrisy. He was always right, and therefore he was always a cut above everyone else. Now what was lost to him was that he was standing alone because no one wanted to stand beside him. He reeked of the putrid stench of hypocrisy. No one was interested because his arrogance had alienated him from others and compromised his saltiness. Now, I want you to, let, let's contrast that spiritual leader with another religious leader whom God met in the temple. He, he was the salty prophet Isaiah. Do, do you remember his vision of God in the temple where God invited him into this incredible ministry? I'm, I'm going to read the account for you in Isaiah's words beginning in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. Here, here's what 
the story. This is what happened. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. They couldn't look at God. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And how did Isaiah respond to that glorious vision? Woe to me! Woe is me! I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So we need to understand who this is. This is Isaiah. He's chosen by God to speak on behalf of God to God's people. A critical role as the salt of the earth. He went to the temple in a vision. And when he saw the glory of God, he also saw the disturbing truth that he was not worthy. He saw the disturbing truth that he wasn't worthy. As as a matter of fact, interestingly, He admitted that he was no different from the people around him. Did you pick up on that? Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And, by the way, I live just like all the other people with unclean lips. We're the same. They were all utterly dependent upon God to get things right. Now, sure... Isaiah had a special relationship with God or he would not have invited him to fill that critical role as prophet. But Isaiah understood that in his sinfulness, he did not stand alone. He was no better than they were, so he wasn't going to judge his neighbors as inferior. He admitted to being a part of the sinful community. Now, in contrast... Fast forward to the temple in the New Testament. The Pharisee pointed out to God all the reasons he was above everyone else. And no doubt, his resume was impressive if the temple had been in the state penitentiary. What did he say? He said his righteousness exceeded that of robbers, of evildoers, of adulterers, and certainly that of that turncoat tax collector who was wailing away in the corner. He couldn't even look to God because of his sinfulness. He was impressive by his own merits. He he didn't need God to help him. He actually thought God should appreciate him. Here I am, God. You're lucky I'm on your side. Ironically, 
It was the greedy tax collector who stood with Isaiah in the temple. Think about it. The most sinful among them stood side by side with the prophet. The Pharisee was quick to tell him he was wrong, but he didn't need the Pharisee's help. He knew. He knew who he was and what he had done. See, tax collectors earned a living by taking money, hard-earned money from their Jewish brethren, and what they didn't keep for themselves, they passed on to the oppressors, the Roman government. It, it was undoubtedly a despicable way to make a very, very good living. And he was so distraught about what he was doing, about his inability to turn from the greed that drove him, that he couldn't even look up as he prayed. He essentially prayed the words of Isaiah, Woe to me. I'm ruined. I've done it to myself. His, his posture before God was one of humble apology. It was the posture of apology. He, he was sorry for what he had done. He, he wasn't perfect, and he knew deep down that he didn't deserve God's mercy, but he also knew just enough about God to believe that if he asked for it anyway, in spite of the fact that he didn't deserve it, that God would respond. And he did. Why is that? Because God is drawn to humility like a magnet. The scripture says of God that he dwells in the high and lifted up and with the lowly and contrite of heart, with the broken, with those who recognize their need for him. Jesus' lesson with this story was that the self-sufficient arrogance of the Pharisee, of any of us, will lead to our rejection by God, but with the humble heart, broken dependence of the tax collector, God accepts us and lifts us up. In other words, it was the hypocritical arrogance of the Pharisee that compromised his saltiness, rendering him useless. But it was the humility of confession, the ownership of his failures, that created the path to restoration for the tax collector. He was humbled by his failure. He didn't deny it. He didn't hide it. He was humbled by it. He recognized his helplessness. He could not fix it. And he acted on it. He acted on it. And in the process, he modeled for us the discipline of restoration that God cooperates with 
to make us salty again. Look, we can't become salty again on our own. But God is looking for a faithful few, the committed, who say, I want to be, I desire to be salty for your kingdom, and I'll do what I need to do to facilitate restoration. Now, what is the discipline of restoration? There are three things we need to do, and these build on each other. Three things I want you to remember, so write them down. There has to be recognition, request, and repentance. Okay, three R's. Recognition, request, and repentance. Now, what's critical for us to understand here, before I jump into recognition, request, and repentance, is that these steps are to be followed on a vertical plane with God, as well as on a horizontal plane with people, with those we are called to be salt for. Remember, we are the salt of the earth. So we must be aligned with God if he's going to restore our saltiness, but it's just as critical to be right with others so they will see us as a source of salt. Remember, we are the salt of the earth. And if we lose our saltiness in the eyes of those we are attempting to influence, we will lose our credibility. And they'll turn away from our message because we will have turned away from the hope that it represents. So before God and men... We must recognize, request, and repent. So what's that about? First, there must be a recognition of failure. Okay, now this, this is tough. But here's the truth. We fall short in living up to the high calling of holiness before God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We are all of us failures. We miss the mark. And when we miss the mark, we sin against God and, typically, we sin against others. Think about some of God's commands. One of the top ten is to tell the truth. We're we're, we're not supposed to. To lie. And yet, in an attempt to protect ourselves, we choose not to tell the truth. We lie to other people. It's a sin against God and others. God commands us not to gossip or slander. And yet, when someone hurts us, we will stop at nothing to tear them down in the eyes of other people. Now, these sins not only affect our relationship with God because we're rebelling against His wisdom, but they impact our relationship with other people, those same people that we are called to serve as salt. So the first step in restoration is that we must own our failure. We have to recognize that we have sinned against God and the people we are called to love serve, and encourage. We have to recognize it and own it just like Isaiah did. Woe to me. I'm a man or woman of unclean lips, 
of impure heart and twisted mind. We have to recognize that. But recognizing it's not enough. It's just the first step. The second step is we must request forgiveness. So we recognize our failure and we request forgiveness. Now the truth is for the follower of Jesus Christ, the one, those of us who are connected with God by faith in Jesus, requesting forgiveness of God is really much easier than requesting it from other people. Right? I mean, we know exactly what the Scripture says about God. We know how He responds to our humility and confession of our sins. He actually delights in forgiving them. It's what He sent Jesus to die to do. He loves to forgive us through our confession. That's what John was getting at in 1 John 1.9 when he said, if we confess our sins. If we're humble enough to recognize our failures and confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and, in addition, purify us from all unrighteousness. God is anxious to forgive. He delights in wiping the slate clean in order to purify us and restore our salt and so we recognize what we have to do. We confess our sins. We acknowledge that we failed. We name that sin. And then through confession, we request forgiveness. And that's what God does, thankfully. He endeavors to restore that vertical relationship so that we can walk in Him. But for whatever reason, it's easier to confess to God than it is to those we live with. Right? It's much harder to request forgiveness from those that we have obviously harmed on a horizontal plane. Maybe it's our pride that prevents us from admitting that we were wrong. Like the other person doesn't know. Or, maybe it's a fear that they won't be so quick to forgive. After all, there are no guarantees in Scripture that if we confess our sins, everybody will be faithful and just and forgive us our sins and restore us to right relationship. That's not there. But if we're going to be the salt of the earth, We have to take the risk. We have to be courageous enough to own our failure, confess it to those we've failed, and request forgiveness. See, without saying, I'm sorry, and asking for forgiveness, we will never have a credible witness to those we've hurt. It can't be because, you know what, it denies the gospel. We, we don't say, I'm sorry, because we're living behind the facade of arrogant self-sufficiency. 
We've, we've created the image, the idea in our own minds at least, that we've got it all right. So we stand alone. And we lose our salt. Can I let you in on a secret though? This is really good to know. People don't expect you to be perfect. They don't. Because they know you're not. What they want from us is for us to recognize our failure and apologize. To ask forgiveness. And when we do that, you know what happens? There's a very good chance that not only will our credibility before them be restored, but our relationship will be strengthened and restored. It always fascinates me to learn of someone who, who just, people who refuse to apologize. They're never wrong. They, they will not say they're sorry. It fascinates me because we tend, we have a tendency to fail. All of us, parents, listen, if you apologize to your kids when you mess up, when you lose it, you will teach them more about honorable living and how to navigate life than you ever would if you were perfect, if you never messed up. So stop pretending. If you're married, then surely you recognize that the bonds of your relationship are strengthened more when you communicate honestly through failure than when you foolishly try to hide it every time. So we need to admit our mistakes. We need to ask forgiveness. That is the pathway to flourishing in any relationship, in our Vertical relationship with God and in our horizontal relationship with others. There's a third step, though. The third step in the discipline of restoration is repentance. I know we're probably not supposed to talk about repentance, and it it just seems so rigid. Let, Let me tell you what repentance means. It's not threatening at all. It just means turning around. It literally means changing direction. So if, if I'm walking north, I believe, if I'm walking north and I turn around and head south, I have repented. I have changed directions. And guess what? When I do that, you know it. It's obvious. You can literally see that I have changed direction. Now, When we are running independently from God in disobedience, when we are rejecting and rebelling against His wisdom, and then we choose to change direction and choose obedience, it is crystal clear to God that we have repented. 
that we have turned around, that we have moved into position to join him in living out the vision for which he created us. When we repent in our relationship with others and we work to break the patterns of selfishness that harm them, guess what? They can see it. They know. So you don't just repent in your mind or your heart. You repent in public. That's what you demonstrate. There, there's another famous tax collector in the book of Luke, and, and he actually follows the one in chapter 18. He recognized his sinfulness. His name was Zacchaeus, right? You guys remember him? He was the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? And so we know that when Jesus was walking down that road and Zacchaeus was looking at him, Jesus saw him and walked up to him, and in a measure of acceptance, he said, hey, come on down, let's, let's do lunch. I'm going to eat in your house today. It was a sign that he accepted Zacchaeus for who he was. And you know what Zacchaeus did in response to the Lord's acceptance? He repented of his sin in the most visible way possible. He began to undo what he did. Look at what he said after he jumped down out of that tree in Luke 19.8. But Zacchaeus stood up. I picture him jumping down, landing, and then popping up. And he said to the Lord, Lord... Look, Lord, here and now, right now, I'm turning around. I'm changing direction. I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, the most tangible way for Zacchaeus to show his repentance was to make reparations for what he had done, for what he had stolen. So he renounced greed. He said, I'm no longer going to be consumed by greed. Here and now I'm giving 50% of my portfolio away. And for those he defrauded, for those on the horizontal plane that he was literally stealing from as a tax collector, he paid them back what he took plus Four times the amount. Now, here, here's the truth about repentance. We can't always undo the wrong we have done. You know, once you say something, we would love to take those words back, but we can't always do that. They're out. And the damage has been done. But here's what we can do. We can always show a change of heart. We can always demonstrate an earnest desire to reconnect with those we've harmed by changing direction. They'll see it. They'll know. It's not just the words you say when you request forgiveness. It's what you do on the other side of it. And when we make the changes necessary, what happens is God joins us. He begins to reestablish our credibility. And with God's help, we can be salty again. We can serve those people effectively that God called us to serve. 
Now listen, this is who you are. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the salt of the earth. That's your core purposeful identity. So here's what we need to do as the salt of the earth. We need to stave off the urge to hypocritically hide our faults and our failures because that's what compromises our saltiness. Hypocrites have no salt. So, as followers of Jesus, we need to recognize our sin. We need to request forgiveness from God and those we harm. And then we need to repent and move in His Spirit in a new direction. That's what we do as followers. That's what we do as the salt of the earth if we want to cooperate with God and become salty again. What about for those of you who are not followers of Jesus? Who haven't come to the place in your life where you, you trust Him for your salvation? Where you, you're just not quite ready to say, I, I'm, I recognize I'm dependent upon God to get it right. I have to humbly tell you the truth. And your story will back me up. You can't fix what's broken any more than I can. We may create this facade of self-sufficiency that we can get it right, but it's just a facade. We are all of us dependent upon God for forgiveness. And we depend upon God to lead us to the life he created us to live. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No one comes to the Father, realizes their purpose, and serves as salt by him. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, these steps are for you. He died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, and he invites us to connect with the Heavenly Father. And what we do in response is recognize our sinfulness, recognize that we need him. We are dependent. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And then once we recognize that we need Him, we request forgiveness. All of us have fallen short. All of us have a natural tendency to fail because we're not strong enough to get it all right. So we request forgiveness. And then, having received Jesus and recognizing 
that God forgives us and wants us to be His child. We repent. We turn around. And we move in lockstep with His Spirit toward the great potential. Toward the good works that He created us for. Work doesn't achieve forgiveness. Our work as salt is a celebration that we are forgiven and connected with our Creator. So I want you to bow your heads today as we wrap up. And I just want you to be still before God and allow Him to speak. And I want to talk to those of you in the room who are believers, who are the salt of the earth in this room first. And I want to ask you, to ask God to bring to mind someone, some group, that person that deserves an apology from you. Maybe it's that person, maybe it's a child or a parent or a brother, a neighbor that you've been alienated from because you are right and they are wrong. And you're not going to admit it. That's where you've been. Can I tell you that just as we are compelled by Scripture to forgive we are instructed by Scripture to ask for forgiveness of God and others. Is there someone that you need to own your failure before, that you need to request forgiveness of, and then demonstrate to them that you've repented? It's risky. It's going to require courage. But it's also going to lift the lid and provide opportunities for you to be what God made you to be. That's the salt of the earth. What if they don't respond appropriately? You've done your part. And in doing your part, you're sowing seed that God can use in due time to bear fruit for His glory and for your relationship. Who is it? And will you have the courage? ask forgiveness. For those of you who are not believers, I, I just want you to know that God delights in the prospects of connecting with you. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. He was raised from the dead to show that he can overcome any barrier. And he wants to bring you life, abundant life, 
but you're going to have to humble yourself and recognize your need for him. And if the Holy Spirit is leading you to do that right now, listen, it's, it's simple. He did all the work. He died, was buried, raised from the dead so that we could have eternal life. That's, that's the story of grace. We connect with that story by faith where we say, you know what, God, I, I recognize that I can't do it alone. I need your help. I'm dependent upon you. You trust him for forgiveness. And then what happens is that God will give you the desire to turn around, to repent, and begin to walk in the easy rhythms of his grace. Father, thank you so much for reminding us of the truth about who we are. We struggle, we fail, we don't always get things right. But more importantly, Lord, that you've revealed to us a path whereby we can connect with you and live a meaningful, fruitful life through this discipline of restoration. Lord, help us to be honest enough to recognize our faults, to request forgiveness, and to repent and live for your glory. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you.